So last week, we, we began in chapter 22. We didn't begin in chapter 22, but we finished in chapter 22. And you remember that was a, a prophecy about Jerusalem, Jerusalem by another name here, the Valley of Vision, as you look at chapter 2. And the reason that they call it the Valley of Vision is because God revealed so many things um, and prophecies into the prophets in and around Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem is the centerpiece of so much, so much of prophecy. You know, as we've been going through Isaiah, you may have noticed the pattern that we have seen. The first 12 chapters of Isaiah, we learned about the kings that were there at that time. God opened the book with some prophecies. We learned about King Ahaz and the prophecy of the Messiah that came as a result of Ahaz completely rejecting God or failing to even try to um, to understand him or give him an opportunity to show a sign that he would always be with them. Now, that's, we got through the first 12 chapters, we saw that the prophecies always referred to the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, and we've learned some prophecies in there that were fulfilled with the birth and life of Jesus Christ. Now we're in the midst of the next 11 chapters, or 12 chapters, if you will, having all of these prophecies that, that God has given as a result. These are, um, these are accessory to the prophecies that we saw in chapter 12 they have to do as you recall with all these nations and all these groups that were around and about Jerusalem so we've gone through many of them in the last uh, 10 chapters now we're talking about Jerusalem next week we'll talk about Tyre you remember Tyre we talked about a little bit back in Isaiah 14 when God took the king of Tyre and rolled it into a description of Satan and how he fell he fell from God and next week, we'll conclude that this section on those prophecies. And then the next 12 chapters after that have to do with God summing up through Isaiah what we've talked about, praising God, cautioning us to pay attention to what he says, leading us into chapter 35, where there's a tremendous, or 33, 34, and 35 that have a tremendous vision of the kingdom of God when it is on earth. And then we move into some history with King Isaiah that we'll learn a lot of lessons as as well. But we're in chapter 22 tonight, and we'll get through the prophecy of, of um, Jerusalem. We're finding, you know, in each of these chapters, something that we've heard about that, that we learn about in Isaiah. And that just chapter 22 is no different than that. Last week, we talked about a few things. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about um, another Another nation, if you will, or group of people that I pretty much just went over last last week, but I decided to go back and look at it and bring you some information on Elam and Kerr in verse six. And then we're going to move on into, um, you know, down here into some changes that God made in the administration of Hezekiah, and where he talks about the house, about the, uh, the key of David, the key of David, um, which is an interesting thing that has that has a meaning for back then and meaning for us today, too. So let's pick it up, though. We, we got through chapter or verse 7 last week, but let's pick it up in verse 6 again. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read verse 5. You remember that last week when we were talking about everything that was going to befall Jerusalem and that area. talks about a day of trouble. We compared that to the time of Jacob's trouble that is mentioned in Jeremiah 30 and end-time prophecies that use that same verbiage. In verse 5, it says, For it is a day of trouble, talking about Jerusalem, and treading down, and perplex perplexity by the Lord. Hello? Okay. By the Lord God of hosts, in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. And you'll recall, we went to Matthew 24, and we looked at some of those verses in there, looked at Jeremiah 30. And then in verse 6, 
In verse 6, it says, Elam. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Now, this was about, this was about war, of course. Elam is a, a group that's there, and I'm going to put a map up here in a second. Talks about them having their chariots of men and their horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. So let me put up first, um, first a map so you can kind of see where we are when we're talking about Elam. And I think you can see that now. So this is a, another yet another map of that whole area that we've been talking about. You recognize many of the cities that we've talked about in the last several weeks, Damascus, uh, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Arabia, Cush, Ethiopia, all these we have talked about. Babylon, Assyria has been prevalent in our, our conversations, the Medes, the Persians. And over there in the Far East, you see this nation group place where Elam, Elam lives. Now, as you look at that today, and, and the UCG Bible commentary, we'll see that in a minute, you know, it it's, talks about the, the Persians. Elam was the Persians, and then the commentary will also make the, the uh, reference that Kerr is likely the Medes. And so you have the Medes and Persians here, all involved in this whole area around Jerusalem, as we have all these prophecies of all these things that happened to them that we can document back in the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, and all these all these prophecies of what will occur in this with these same groupings of people that by the Bible uses later on in, in, in life. So keep this in mind. Again, you got Jerusalem over there um, that you see right next to Ashdod on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Next week we're going to be talking about Tyre. Tyre is right there. And Tyre was one that they were they were shipfaring people that went out and explored um, the various areas up there. You have Egypt and you have all these places. You see Elam over there to the east. And Elam and Kerr are going to be you know, the figure in the prophecy of Jeremiah's fall or Jerusalem's fall um, that happened or Jerusalem's um, conquest by Assyria that happened back at the time. Assyria never did conquer Jerusalem. But just so you have a vision of where the, 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 the nations were in again, because we see these and we'll continue to see those throughout the book of, of Isaiah. Now, let me put up for you, too, what comes right from the UCG Bible commentary regarding, um, regarding uh, Elam and Kerr. And this, uh, and I'll say I, I looked through many, many commentaries. They all agree. They all agree on who are the modern, uh, who are the modern day, uh, modern day Elamites and, and Kerr. It says, and this is our commentary, it says this would seem, verse 6, to indicate that indicate Elam attacking uh, Jerusalem, but perhaps not. It says Elam bore the quiver, which could indicate that it is serving another army, perhaps even by compulsion, which would make sense if this applied to the ancient Assyrian army, which likely had Elamites and other peoples pressed into involuntary service. And, and that may likely be the case. But it is interesting because the Medes and Persian, then Persians follow them later because there is Babylon, who conquers Assyria, and then the Medes and Persians who conquer Babylon. So you see everything switching gears to that whole area of the world. Again, however, um, the commentary says, it is conceivable that the reference is dual, applying also to the end time. As modern Elam is found in Eastern Europe, Iran, and India, perhaps weapons from these areas will be utilized by the end time Assyrian army in its initial assault on the modern nations of Israel. 
So, you know, in times past, we've talked about the Assyrian people um, migrating up into, into Northern Europe. We've talked about the Babylonians and how history will show that they migrated and could well be part of the, the Italian uh, area today. And so we see Elam of these Persians and the Persians and Medes from today in Eastern Europe, Iran, and India. Now, I should put the, um, well, I don't have a map, I don't think, but let me look at this map again here for a second. Um, no, but you know, when you, where you see Carchemish on this map, if you go straight north of that, you have the Caspian or the Black Sea, and then you have the Caucasus Mountains. And you'll remember even ancient Israel, when they escaped from uh, Assyrian captivity, that's where they migrated up through that area and then over throughout Europe. And so it appears that many of the peoples in the area at that time did migrate through that same route and, and are there in Eastern Europe and in those areas of the East, you know, uh, today. As we read, as we read, you know, the commentary on that, it might make us remember that in the end time when we've read Daniel 11, you know, several times, there is a king of the north. Again, right there is the north of the Mediterranean Sea. There is a king of the south. And then we have, you know, what the Bible calls news from the east that troubles the, the king of the north. So we have the eastern contingent as well. We have those powers all in that same area in the end time that are there at the time that we're looking at today that was fulfilled back at the time that these prophecies were fulfilled the first time. So, so if we go back to chapter 22 and, and, and 6, there is some meaning in that verse that I just kind of flew by last time, but I wanted to come by, come back and, and, and make, you, make you aware of what the modern day identities of these people are, what they're doing, and again, draw your, uh, draw your attention to the areas of the world that we're talking about then. Now, part of the reason that we would say that this could be a, a dual prophecy is because of verse 7. Following through on verse 6, it says, it shall come to pass. It shall come to pass. It hadn't come to pass then. Of course, there's a prophecy then, but, but it could be that there's another one down the road. It shall come to pass that your choicest valley shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. So we can talk about, and I think we mentioned last week about Jerusalem being surrounded and becomes a place of conflict and becomes full of armies as the as the world gathers there at the time of the end, as we read in um, in Matthew 24. So going on from there, <clears throat> you know, we see that it is God. It's, it's God who did all these things. Throughout Isaiah, we're always reminded, you know, God loves his people, but God does punish his people when they depart from him. There are consequences for our actions. And while he loves Jerusalem, he does allow, he does allow the conflict and the captivity and the, the, you know, the wars and, and that to come upon Jerusalem. In verse eight, it specifically says that it says he, he, God, removed the protection of Judah. It wasn't the Assyrian army that came and threatened them. It wasn't the Babylonian army. God allowed those to happen. They were tools in his hands, but he removed the protection of Judah. And we see God doing that. So even in our nation today, you will you will hear about, you know, when God removes his blessings from his people today and he removes his protection from them, what will happen? It's a blessing that we probably the, the people of, of this world and the Israelite nations of today just simply take for granted and don't pay much attention to. Um, but something we should pay attention to. And when that blessing of protection is no longer there, we will we will well feel it the way Jerusalem did. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. 
So, so we're going to pause there on verse 8, and then I'll read through 9, 10, and 11, because God begins to make reference to something that Jerusalem and the people are doing. He's going to talk in the next few verses about how they began to look when they were threatened at the world around them. What could they do to protect themselves? What could they trust in? Something they had already built. And then he comes, he comes to a conclusion in verse 11. But as far as this house of the forest, let's go back to 1 Kings 7. And verse 2 is referenced there. And see that this is something that was specifically mentioned prior. It's always interesting when you read of these uh, places or, uh, or things in the Bible, and then later on, many books later, you come back and see that it's still there. It's something that the people began to realize or rely on. In 1 Kings 7 and verse 1, talks about, you know, Solomon has just been, been done building the temple in, in at the end of chapter 6. In verse 7, or verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, but Solomon, he took seven years to build God's house, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all of his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now, this was a kind of an armed fortress, if you will. It was heavily, I guess, heavily weaponized, they say. It gives us the lengths there of how wide this was and everything. It was pannered with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, pillars 15 to a row. And it gives all the definitions of it there. And it's quite, it was quite a complex when you read, when you read in the history of what this was. They would look to that as their place. Today, today in, in this country, we might look to the Pentagon. If you're in Canada, whatever your military base might be, right? This is where the this is where the, the brains of the, the military are. These are the ones who are protecting our country. And so when God says in Isaiah 22 here, he began to look to the, to the, the forest, to the um, house of the forest of Lebanon. It was, it was named that way because of all the cedar from Lebanon that came that was part of that, part of that fortress. Um, so he's saying, what he's saying is something we could say today. When, when terror came or when, on, or when trouble came, you know, you began to look, you began to look at your military. You began to look at your, your, arsenal of weapons. You began to look and say, we've got more nuclear weapons than this country or that country or whatever. Lull yourself to sleep and think we're protected because of this. So that's what he, that's what he begins there in, 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 um, I'm in the wrong chapter, chapter 22 in verse eight. And then in verse nine, 10, and 11, he continues as, as these threats against Jerusalem came from Assyria, you can see that they did some preparations. Now, there's going there's nothing wrong with preparations. There's nothing wrong with preparing and doing things when when trouble comes. Um, you know, we'll we'll see that here in a minute. But in verse nine, it says, "You also saw the damage to the city of David; that it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool." Oh, you saw the city of David. There was damage there, and you went out and you did something with these waters of the lower pool. And there's a very interesting feature that you've always heard of in Jerusalem that is, I'm going to say, unique to Jerusalem and plays a part in the history here and likely a history of the temple in the millennial time as well. But we'll talk about that here in a minute. You saw this damage to the city of David and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. Now that's an interesting that's an interesting verse. If you read through the commentaries, I think even our UCG commentary will talk about how in recent times um, archaeologists have uncovered this wall of houses that were there at the point where this wall would likely be. 
And they're saying that that's what is referenced here in chapter 22 and verse 10. Somehow Hezekiah, in preparation for Assyria's likely attack and to protect the city, had these houses there. For some reason, I don't fully understand that that would be a protectorate to them to have that there. But archaeology has proven this is likely what verse 10 was talking about because they have found all these ruins with these houses lined up right where the wall, right where the wall is. In verse 11, then, it says, you also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. So let me stop there. Then we'll come back to the last sentence of verse 11. What God is referring to here is that Hezekiah, as a, a king, and remember Hezekiah was loyal to God. He completely was reliant on God. But they did make all these preparations. And we can read about those preparations back in 2 Chronicles. So let's take some time and go back and look at 2 Chronicles 32 and see what they did as they were being threatened by Assyria and as they saw the nations around them one by one falling to Assyria. Second Chronicles 32, we see some of those, some of these preparations. It says in verse 1, after these days, after these deeds, after these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and entered Judah. Remembered, remember that God did allow them to come into Judah, but he said that they would not conquer Jerusalem, which they did not. So Sennacherib comes in, he enters Judah, he encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. But when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Well, just like today, water was a precious resource, and Jerusalem had a singular blessing and source of water that is that is unique in that time, and has to do with the, the whole the whole area that God gave David. You remember that God gave David, it used to be called the city of Jebus when the Jebusites had it, and God gave him that in a battle, and that was where his, that was where his name was going to be. So they, they decide, you know, this water, we're going to have to do something with this water. Why should the kings of Assyria have this precious resource? It belongs to us. And verse five says, he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers and built another wall outside. Also, he repaired the Mio in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. They sent military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate and gave them encouragement saying, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, they went about and they did all these things, and it took a lot of work. It was no small feat to do what, what Hezekiah and his team did. Many of the people there apparently were putting their stock into what they had done. Hezekiah never did. Hezekiah always had faith in God. It teaches us a lesson. You have faith in God, but you also do some things for yourself as well, and don't just sit back and do nothing. We're going to see something later on about Hezekiah as well. But let's look at verse 30 here of 2 Chronicles 2 or 32. And it talks, it says, This same Hezekiah, 
also stopped the water outlet of the upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prepared, uh, Hezekiah prospered in all his works. God was with him. God was with him as he built this wall of houses, as he fortified the city, as he did the weapons, as he, as he built Hezekiah's tunnel, which is one of the wonders of the world. So let me, let me pause there and, and, and talk for a moment about some of the, the geography of Jerusalem. And I'm going to put a couple of, of slides up here. Um, I think this is the one I want first. Yeah. I hope you can see that one. This is this is pretty much a layout of the area of what they call the Temple Mount today, the city of David, which is Jebus, which is where David um, conquered. And then you can see over to the right there, the Gihon Spring. This Gihon Spring has quite a reputation. It is it is like a, a kind of when you read it. I have no idea what the quantities of water are when I read about all these about all how much water this spring provides. But the Gihon Spring, which is located there, it's, it's, it's it comes up in a kind of a, a cave, if you will. And several times during the year, the water will just simply come out from this spring and it provides enough water for all of Jerusalem. It's the only source of water in Jerusalem. So they use that for all of their, all of their life, life's needs and whatever, but also, Remember that the temple was built right there. Now there are many, there are there are some today who you see the Temple Mount up to the north there on that picture, and that would be where the Wailing Wall is. That is of uh, some repute. You know the Jews use it more as an idol today. Um, you know, and there are scholars who say that the original to the, the temple was not where the Temple Mount was. That was more likely a fortress for the Roman soldiers. That the temple itself would have been down into the city of David, more likely, um, close to that guy, Han Spring. And there's several reasons for that, because that water supply was very, very valuable, um, very, very valuable to them. And also, when you think about not only all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that they were relying on that water, but also the fact that the temple, remember, with all these animal sacrifices that were going on, that Gihon Spring supplied all the water that that temple always had water for the washings of the priests, the washings down of after all these sacrifices that went on. That just shows you how, how plentiful and how important that Gihon Spring was. So, you know, the, the um, Hezekiah knew how important that was. Um, Oh, wrong one. We just, um, I don't know that I'm going to read through all this. You can kind of uh, look at it. I know i know someone uh, last week has said that some of the things, if you're looking on a phone, can be very small, you know, to see the maps that we put up and some of the stuff that has some uh, verbiage in it. So if ever you want a copy of this, just let me know and I can email you what we looked at here. But this this is um, this is talking a little bit about the Gihon Spring. You see its title there, Jerusalem's Only Water Supply. And, um, you know, it, it, the name it says there in the first paragraph comes from the Hebrew verb to gush forth, the only natural source of water in Jerusalem. It draws water from an underground cave that fills with groundwater accumulating from the rain and snow of Israel's winters. 
So you see here in this picture that's that's blue, this cave, you can actually walk down into the cave where the water isn't gushing um, to go through this tunnel that Hezekiah had built so many years ago. Let me um, well, let me just read through some of it. It is kind of interesting to think about what it is and that God placed Jerusalem right there and placed that spring right there where everything they needed is. And it is a unique feature on earth. At the point of capacity, the Gihon empties through cracks in the rock and the water siphons to the surface. The Israelites used pools and cisterns to collect the overflow, which was common method of storing water. That water ebbed and flowed throughout the day, the frequency depending upon the season. But a consistent supply of water is the usual requisite for an arid city to survive and expand successfully. And so even back in those ancient days, they realized they had this complete, you know, this, this tremendous blessing of this Gihon spring. It would water, it would bring forth water, but it wasn't there every single day. So they had to devise ways to keep it so it could be used throughout the year. To overcome this shortcoming, ingenious systems were designed to aid collection of water and cause it to flow upward. And then, you know, you can see that even in Solomon's days, they have those pools that you can even see there today. I'm, I'm told where these pools were, where they constructed it so that when that water came out, they could capture it in reservoirs, if you will, so that it could be used by the city throughout, throughout the year. So, you know, it, it, was a, it is a tremendous blessing. Now, the word Gihon might make you remember you know, it, it means it means it means, as we said there, the Hebrew word is to gush forth, and we first see that word back in Genesis two. And you remember, in the Garden of Eden, God talks about four rivers, four rivers that go out from Eden, and two of those are the Tigris and Euphrates that we know where those are today. The other, there's a lot of talk about where the other two rivers are. No one knows for sure where it is, but in Genesis 2, verse 10, it says, A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. Uh, it is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but Delium and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And so you'll remember we talked about Cush when we were talking about Ethiopia, and you'll remember the map we had of Ethiopia and what will happen, you know, what, what is prophesied about Ethiopia and the unique and the unique nation that it is today, even in today's world, that they have never been colonized, one of only two nations in Africa that have never been colonized. They keep a different calendar. God seems to have pro kept that people away from that area and whatever may be there that we don't know for sure, but there is speculation what may be there as we talk about that prophecy. But then you have this Gihon and it circles, it circles Ethiopia. It's the same burst forth, but in Isaiah, we have this spring that is talked about as Gihon. Now we, you know, is it, what Hezekiah did He created the tunnel, and that's what this is um, talking about. You can see people there at the top of the page. You can actually, if you go over to Israel, and it's not the time when the water is flowing, and it isn't, doesn't seem to be as it was today, as, as it was back then. But you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel there and see what he did, because what he did was channel that water in such a way to protect the city from a um, um, Assyria. And if there was a siege, they would have plenty of water 
to, to be able to sustain them through any kind of siege that Sennacherib and Assyria might put up against them. In those days, a siege, you would run out of food, you'd run out of um, water, you know, the whole nine yards. And so it says there, the Hezekiah's tunnel, it was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring, channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. He succeeded in everything he undertook. They're quoting here from 2 Chronicles 32, verse 30. In times of war, the water supply beyond Jerusalem's walls would be a point of weakness for the city, which would fail under siege more than a dozen times. But Hezekiah, down, going down to the fourth paragraph there, dammed up the waters and cut a channel through this capital, or through the Ophel, the city of David, um, to the pool of Siloam. 1,700-foot uh, tunnel is a marvel of the engineering methods of Hezekiah's age. The teams of laborers started at opposite ends and met in the middle. And of course, here's one of the things they've discovered, um, this, this, Shiloh, this Shiloh inscription that um, was written some 2,700 years ago to support what went on there. So you can see as God worked with them, God does supply what he needs. You know, Hezekiah was a very smart man. What Hezekiah was, so was very loyal to God. And God gave him and his team what they needed in order to, to work this, this uh, miracle, if you will, um, that's still considered a modern, a modern wonder to protect that city. God will provide whatever we need, we keep learning, uh, to, to be able to protect us and see us through. But we've got to be willing to put in the effort. Hezekiah could have just stepped back and said, hey, whatever you want to do, you know, is okay with me, just do it all, God. But no, they were they were busy at work as God was leading them. Now that 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 uh spring of Gihon, um, you know, let's look at John 9. John 9. It mentions there the pool of Siloam. And of course, there was a miracle of Christ that happened at the pool of Siloam. And understanding this spring of Gihon that we have just talked about, we might be able to see why, um, you know, why people thought that this had some magical, magical magic to it, this, this pool. In verse 7, um, now verse 6. Uh, John 9, verse 6, he's, he's uh, talking about the man who was born blind. Of course, I think I referenced this just a couple weeks ago um, in, in a sermon, you know, and Christ uses an example when his disciples said, well, who, who sinned, this man or his father, that he was born blind? And Christ said, neither of them. Don't, don't judge. This was done so that, um, so that God's work could be revealed. So in verse six, it says, when Christ had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated since. So he went and washed and came back seeing. He didn't have to, Christ didn't have to have him go wash in the pool of Siloam. He could have healed him and just said, go on your way, but he had to do something in the process as as well, but this pool of Siloam, Siloam was fed by the 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 um, spring the spring of Gihon. Now it's interesting, you know, as we look ahead in the future, and as we as we look at that city of David, and we see that spring of Gihon that's there, and how important the that water was to Jerusalem, and what a resource it was to them, and how it is probably likely that 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 temple may have been may not be exactly where the temple mount is today but down in that city of david that we talked about then when we look at ezekiel when we talk about the millennial temple 
understanding the magnitude of that spring of Gaihan and the waters that would flow from there that were able to, to take care of the entire city, take care of all the needs of the temple, that there is this water that comes out from that millennial temple that's there. That may be, I'm just going to say, this is 100% speculation, that may be the this, uh, this uh, Gaihan spring as well. But let's just look for a moment at chapter 47 because we see water intimately involved again with, with the temple in the millennial time. In chapter 47 of Ezekiel, in verse 1, it says, he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east, the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. So the water was coming out from where the temple is, flowing out to the east. And so if we could drop down to verse... Um, Verse 8 um, says, he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Now, that's exactly what we would expect, healing waters from the temple from Christ at the time of the millennium. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed. And everything will live wherever the river goes. So it's a beautiful, a beautiful sight when you think about it. You think the millennial temple and God gives all the specifications of how that temple will be built. And then you have this water flowing from it. It's reminiscent, of course, of Jesus Christ talking about the rivers of, of living water. And we see this river of life in Revelation as well. In Revelation 21, I think it is, or 22, let me get there. Yeah, Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 1 says, He showed me a pure river of water of life. A pure, a crystal clear, pure river of water of life. Clear, well, crystal, clear as crystal. I guess that's where we get the uh, saying from. Proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, you know, you have this picture of this water. And in ancient Israel, where the temples were, this upper Gihon or the spring of Gihon was there, that God used, God used and had some pretty amazing things done by his people during that time. So when we read about Hezekiah, and the work that was done back then, it was no small feat. It wasn't something that was done overnight. It wasn't pushing a button and it happened. This took a lot of planning. This took a lot of work. This took a lot of time. And I'm sure when it was done, everyone who was involved in it was just marveled at what it was and realized there is no siege that's going to succeed against us for lack of water. We've got the market on the water, which is uh, a, the, one of the, the, the most valuable resource. So if we go back to chapter 22 now in Isaiah, and we look at verses 8, 9, and 10 again, you can see all the work that was done. You know, they, they looked to this armament that was there in Solomon's day, this, this house of the forest that was built back in that time that we looked at. You see this wall with the houses and the, what, what Hezekiah worked that has been uncovered by archaeology. In 11, it notes this Hezekiah's tunnel, this reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. They did a lot of work. 
And when they looked at it, they probably thought there is nothing, there is no one that could defeat this city. But that was the physical people. Hezekiah never did. You know, when we look back at First Chronicles 32, remember he said when they were all done, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. And of course, subsequent to that, you have the king of Assyria and his rab Sheikah, as they called him, came and they were threatening. No God has ever been able to stand against us. No capital has ever been able to stand against us. No king has ever been able to stand against us. And they, they, they huffed and they puffed, but they could not blow the house of Jerusalem down, right? So, and, and Hezekiah said, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. God is with us. Everything else we've done is great, but it's God with us and he will deliver us. And you remember what we read back a couple of weeks ago when he laid that letter down in front of God and just said, God, we are powerless against these people. They made all of these preparations, but he knew that without God, they were completely, completely helpless. So if we go back to verse 11, then we see what the, the people did. And Hezekiah certainly encouraged them. But in verse 11, at the end of it, God says, you did all these things, but you didn't look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. Isn't that an interesting comment for God to make? Because he knew what was in their hearts. Hezekiah was there. We do all these things, but we look to God. He is the one who, he is the one who delivers. He is the one who provides. He is the one who heals. We do things for ourselves. We don't do things for ourselves necessarily with the eye. We do things that we need to do, you know, as God directs us, but it is God who provides and God who shows the way. And so God is chastising them. You trusted in your, you trusted in your armaments. You trusted in your fortresses. You trusted in Hezekiah's tunnel. Yet I'm the one who gave it all to you. It's because of me that you were even able to do these things. Now, as we, as we go on into the book of Isaiah, I think it's, I think it's chapter 38, you have the story of Hezekiah. And you remember after everything, he, he ends up with the disease that is unto death. And Isaiah comes and tells him, you are going to die, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah weeps and Hezekiah asks God for more time. And, and, God, and God grants it to him, 15 more years, if you recall. And, and, and sends Isaiah back, and Isaiah says, God has answered your prayer. You will live another 15 years. But remember, even then, all, that's all that God had to do. All he had to do was say it, but he, Isaiah gave him a poultice of figs and told Hezekiah, put these, put these on you. If Hezekiah hadn't followed through and used that poultice of figs, certainly God could heal him without any poultice of figs. Certainly he could have healed Naaman, you know, without having a dip in the Jordan seven times. But there are things that God would ask us to do that are in line with his will to bring us more in line with our, his will and to remember that we are completely subordinate to him and do whatever he says. So in verse 11, you know, we have this, we have God saying all these things and God knows him who directed all of it. He gave, he gave the power, he gave the abilities to do these things. God said, but you didn't look to me. You didn't, you didn't follow me. And in verse 12, then it goes on and it says, and in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for boldness and for girding with sackcloth. You know, he, what he wanted them to do was repent. you right. And so all these things are, are symbols of repentance. He wanted them to repent and turn back to him. That's all God ever wanted from his people. Turn back to me, repent, come back to me. And so he wanted them to see the error of their ways. He wanted to see what they had not been doing and to learn to trust in him and rely on him and, and, and do that. 
And so that's what he wanted to do, but that isn't what the people did. So often they just don't know, they just don't do what God expects them to do. They took and they were, you know, they had prepared all these things in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. And instead of repenting and turning to God and being humble before him and thanking him and grateful to him, what they did was, in verse 13, instead, there was joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. They were partying, you know, and the, the, the famous saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Kind of a, a flippant, flippant attitude, if you will, that, that, that they would have had. Um, shows they didn't, you know, perhaps they didn't have faith even with that. Maybe they were still sure that somehow Assyria was going to come in and conquer them and they were just going to party while they had the opportunity. You know, who knows exactly what they're thinking, but there's a concept here and let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, Paul repeats it in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. You know, something we need to be aware of and, um, you know, that we wouldn't be guilty of. But let's, but let's you know, turn over to Matthew Matthew 24. Now we're in verse 13. Yeah. Matthew um, 24, because we see at the end time, you know, it is the same attitude of just partying, even though all these things have come about. Of course, Matthew 24 is the Olivet Prophecy. And in the Olivet Prophecy, when the disciples ask Christ, what will be the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? And he gives all these, all these points, if you will, in chapter 24. And people, if they're paying attention, can see this one by one, what Christ has said is coming about as that time moves on. But when you get down to verse 36 and you see all the false prophets that are out there, all the deception that's going out there, all of the tribulation that's going out there, in verse 36 um, or verse 37, we see the same attitude. As the days of Noah were, so also will be coming of the so also, also, also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as, in the, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we see that over and over in the Bible. We see that here, right? And it angers God when the people aren't paying attention to what's going on. We don't see the sign. They don't see his involvement in it. He will be very angry with us if we lull ourselves to sleep and think everything is okay. And this is his time to just go on and just, hey, just party, do whatever we're going to do with no foresight and no idea of what's going on so that we will be as surprised as the world when it happens. You saw in the days of Noah, you know, and Luke, he talks about Lot did the same thing. He didn't he wasn't aware of the of the depravity of um, the depravity of, of uh, Sodom that, and Gomorrah that that he lived in. Now we need to be very aware of the times we live in, of the society we live in, as it moves further and further away from God, and we get closer and closer to the time that we wouldn't be guilty of the attitude of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. For tomorrow we die. Okay, let's go back then. To that. So we have this, we have this attitude, 
you know, in chapter two, it's kind of a, you know, it's not Hezekiah because God tells us that Hezekiah did what was right. We have the examples of Hezekiah, but he's got these people around him, some of which are not paying attention to God the way he is. And we read a little bit about that as we go through the rest of the chapter here and beginning in verse 14. It says in verse 14, as Isaiah writes, he says, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you. Well, the iniquity that he's talking about is, you know, you're partying, you're eating and drinking and being merry when you should be repenting and looking to me and humbling yourselves before me and looking, you know, well, looking to me as, as we should be. Surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. And then in verse 15, he gives Isaiah something to something to do with a specific person there in the in the kingdom of Judah. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say. So here, you know, stewards in those days, they were, they were kind of like the second in command. You know, you remember the story of Joseph and Pharaoh and Joseph, uh, Pharaoh, when he promoted him, said, there is no one greater in Egypt than Joseph. He has command over all my house. Um, everything he says, do. The king was still the king. He was still providing the direction, uh, but he gave power and authority to Joseph. Same thing that Joseph had in the house of Potiphar. But here's this Shebna, who is the same thing. He's over the house. He is the second in command in the kingdom. Hezekiah was the, he was the CEO, if you will, and Shebna's job was to carry out, carry out the, the vision, carry out whatever it is that, that God would have, uh, that Hezekiah would have him do. So he's telling Isaiah, go over to this Shebna guy who's over the house and say, and he has something, some pretty austere words to say to this man, Shebna. He says, what have you, what have you here and whom have you here? that you've hewn a sepulcher here, and as he who hews us, as he, wow, too many ages, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Well, what God is saying, basically, that he sends Isaiah to tell Shebna, is that, who do you think you are? What is it about you, Shebna? What are, what are you, what are you doing? You're doing all these things to try to make yourself look great. You're doing these things, and it's all about you. You are looking on how you can develop a name for yourself. You're even hewing out a sepulcher for yourself so that you will be buried here among the, you know, the the, the elite, I guess, of Jerusalem, if we want to uh, call them that. And God makes the indication here, you know, that, you know, who are you? You don't have any family that's here. You're not part of the royal family. You're here as a worker. You're here to do the will of, of the king, if you will. So who are who are you? What are you doing? And God calls Shebna out as a weak link, if you will, in Hezekiah's um, house, if you will. And what is what is the thing that Hezekiah or that Shebna? It's pride. And inordinate to pride, it's all about him. As he goes about his work, he's always got an eye on himself. What is my what's going to be my legacy? What are people going to think of me? How does this benefit me? What does this do to my reputation, et cetera, et cetera? And that's what God is saying here in verse 16. And so in verse 17, as God sees this, he, and it's interesting too, because, you know, Hezekiah, I mean, Shebna was there. So, so Shebna, you know, was, was doing these things and, and God, you know, it's just very interesting that how God puts together 
teams, if you will. And he sees this weakness in Hezekiah's house. And he sends Isaiah not to Hezekiah and says, Hezekiah, get rid of him. He says, you know, you go, you go and go to Shebna and tell him what's going to happen to him, probably to give him the opportunity to repent, if you will, because um, God always gives us an opportunity to repent when it's called to our attention, what our weaknesses and what our faults and our sins are. But God is going to place someone in that position that will complement um, Hezekiah very well, we're going to see in a, in a few minutes here. So God says, Shebna, go to this man, Shebna. He's proud. He doesn't belong there. He's, a, he's out of place in that team of is the Israel, the, the house, of Is, or house of Judah at that time. And, and, his, and Isaiah says to him in verse 17, some pretty stern words. He says, indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently. He's going to throw you away violently, um, Hezekiah, or not Hezekiah, Shebna, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. Now, no one knows where that large country is. But, you know, the commentaries would suggest, as well as our commentary, that that may well have been Assyria, that Shebna may have been taken captive by the Assyrians as part of whatever that went on there. So while he thought he was, was this great mighty man in Judah, he became just a slave in or whatever they did to the people in Assyria. And we know, we know, as we've talked about, Assyria was a very violent and cruel taskmaster. You don't didn't ever want to become part of a captive in, in Assyria. So he will turn, he will turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you will die. And there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. Like, you know, you thought you were making a name for yourself, but Shebna, you are going to bring a disreputation on your family's house. When they think of you, when they think of your family, you are doing them a dishonor. You handle that position very poorly, is what God is saying. So I will drive you, verse 19, I will drive you out of your office, and from your position, he will pull you down. So God is pretty clear. <laughs> Isaiah, as he went there and he talked, and he talked about, uh, gave Shebna this message, it was a pretty clear message. Now, some people will say, if we put our fingers there in Isaiah 22 for a moment, we turn over to chapter 38, I think it is. Maybe it's 36. Yeah, 36, chapter 36. We see a man named Shebna appear in chapter 36 in the first few verses here, when Sennacherib comes against Judah, right? Verse 36 talks about that, 14th year, Sennacherib comes against uh, the fortified cities of Judah, and the king of Assyria sent the Rabshika with a great army to Hezekiah Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field, and Eliakim, we're going to meet him here in a few minutes, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the chef's household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Now, some would suggest that this Shebna is the same Shebna that we just read about in Isaiah 22, and that he now has a lesser position. Might be. We don't know. We don't know if it's the same person or not. You know, as I read what Isaiah said to um, Shebna, 
perhaps, perhaps he did, perhaps he did repent and accept a lower position. It would seem seem kind of out of out of the way that the, that he would be one of the three that um, you know that Hezekiah would go and and speak to um, Sennacherib. But you know, only God only God knows. I think more likely is it's a different Shebna because it refers to him several times in Isaiah as well as back in the Kings and Chronicles as Shebna the scribe. And this Shebna in verse uh, chapter 22 is just Shebna who was over the house. But Mr. Shavy? Yes. Hi, Debbie hi. from Panama City. Yes, yes. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to mention um, Lynn Austin has done a series of five books on the Chronicles of the Kings, mm. you know, I think your wife might have read the set too. I think Focusing she did. on Hezekiah, yep. Hezekiah, it brings out Shebna, it brings out what happened to him. Of course, this is just what she has put together. We have the skeleton of the events in the Bible, but Lynn Austin is so good with filling in all the pieces. It just makes you feel like you're there and you can understand it so well. So um, anyway, it's Lynn Austin, Chronicles of the King talks about Hezekiah, about digging the tunnel, you know, it is just wonderful. It really um, helps you understand yeah. more of what I, the Bible is. Yeah, you know, th thanks for bringing it up. I haven't read the book, but I, my wife did read it along with several other ladies in the church, and it was very enlightening to them to see all the works of Hezekiah. It's based in the Bible, fills in some blanks, you know, just, just to have the story go along, but the facts of the Bible are there and how all that came about. So it's an interesting read if you are if you are interested in that, so. Hey, I'm, lo I'm looking, I wasn't looking at my hands raised, but Xavier, you've got your hand raised. Did you want to make a comment? Yeah, Brother Shabby. Uh, in, in this translation um, here in verse 18, it says, the Lord will roll you up like a ball. So that may, that may indicate, as, you just, as we just read in the later chapter, that rolling back his, his positions and, and abasing him but at the same time, he may not be happy about it. But it says here, he will roll you up like a ball and throw you into a large country. And, and yet somehow in chapter 36, this other Shebna is still there. So yeah, um, whatever happens to Shebna, we'll find out one day. But yes, God was not at all happy with him. Not at all happy with him. So um, yeah. Yeah, because your translation doesn't mention the part about rolling him up. No, it just says that it will drive you. Well, how does it say it? You will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. Yeah, yeah roll this one says like he will roll you up yeah. as a ball. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so. Okay, so Shebna. Shebna, not, not a man of uh, good repute. We want to kind of learn a lesson from him to not be, not be like him. So if we go back, let me look at my notes here. Seems like I had... Um, No, you know, again, it's pride, pride that brought pride that brought uh, Shebna down, something we always have to be on the, on the lookout for in ourselves. Okay, verse 20, verse 20 in Isaiah 22. Um, it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Um, now, Eliakim means um, the one whom God will raise up. And so it's God who brings Eliakim in. It shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna, and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father 
to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So what God does here is, you know, here, this is what you've done. And I'm going to, I'm going to place the person there in that office or that function that I want. It'll be this Eliakim whose name is, you know, whom God will raise up. He'll, he will be in your position. And God knew this man Eliakim, that he was a man after his, his heart. Some commentaries will suggest, even our own commentary, I think, that he was a type of, of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was going to follow and be completely loyal to God and completely loyal to Hezekiah and be a cog in that whole area where the people would be led to trust in God. And as we, led, as we read in Isaiah 36, when there was this team of three that Hezekiah sent out to deal with the Rabshikah, it was Eliakim, the scribe, and the recorder. The three people that were there, Hezekiah didn't go out, but he trusted Eliakim to go out there and, and have the best interest of Judah at heart and also the faith of God at heart when he went out there um, to do that. He'll be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah shows that he would he would love them. He would take care of them. He would provide for them and he would be he would be their servant just as a father always watches out for for his children. And then in verse 22, we see, we see God make quite a statement about Eliakim. And when you read about him, you know, obviously he did what God wanted him to do. And in verse 22, he says, the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. That's quite, that's a quite a statement that God would make about this man. The key to the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. Now, you know, Eliakim was a real person. Eliakim really did succeed Shebna. Eliakim, we read in Isaiah 36. You can read about him in Kings and Chronicles as well. He really was there. But it's the next few verses that indicate this is a more an end time fulfillment of a well as what God will do, because he uses the same words that we use, you know, we see in the, in the New Testament. The key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. Now, what was whatever God was going to have Eliakim of old open? You know, I don't know. I didn't take the time to go through all of Eliakim to see what he would open, but what God was saying, my favor will be with him. He will go where I where I go, and he will, you know, he will, um, the doors that are open there won't be shut, you know, um, you know, if we go back and we look at this key of David, it is quite an interesting, um, interesting thing. If we go back to Isaiah nine, we've already covered that in the in the prophecy of the um, of Christ in Isaiah nine and verse six. It says, "Unto us a child is born; unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder." On his shoulder, on Eliakim's shoulder, he will give the key of David. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor for Mighty um, God. So on, on his shoulder, verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And when we look at Matthew 16... We see when Christ is beginning his church, and he is looking at his disciples there, and he's talking about the church that he will begin, 
that will be his body of called out ones, the one that God the Father, the ones that God the Father will call, the ones who respond that will repent from the heart and turn their hearts over to him, receive his Holy Spirit upon baptism and the laying on of hands, and then follow him and yield their lives to God during that time. In verse 19 of chapter 16, I'll read the whole thing here in verse 17. Jesus answered and said to Peter, when Peter identified, you are the Christ, you are the son of the loving, living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, referring to Christ himself, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I will give you the keys of heaven. You, there is one way into the kingdom of God. And I hope, I hope if there's, there's something that every single person in the church around the world and every single person who ever hears our message understands, among many things I hope they understand, is that there is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is under no other way. I, you know, I've heard a few people say it needs to be said more, and I think I think we've been saying it. I hope everyone knows there is just one way. There's not many ways to the kingdom of God. There's not many ways. There's one way. Through Jesus Christ, following him, obeying him, yielding him, and doing the things that he said to do. And his church, the, his body, of which he is the head, should be doing those things, completely yielded to him and taking um, our direction completely from him, and he will give us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He will open the door for us. It can't be opened any other way except through Jesus Christ and yielding to him and following him and giving our lives to him in complete sacrifice to him, though just the way that Jesus Christ gave his life and sacrifice to us. It has to be that way. That's the only way. We want to enter the kingdom of heaven the Bible shows us, Jesus Christ showed us, he was the forerunner, he set the example of how we live and what we need to do, and his church should be teaching those things, and, and that we adhere exactly, carefully, and diligently to the, to the word of God. Um, we looked at Matthew 16 and verse 19, there's one more verse I wanted to look at, yeah, back in Revelation, of course, Revelation 3. talking to the church of Philadelphia, one church that God doesn't have anything negative to say about. They, they yield to God. They do what God says. In verse uh, 7 of Revelation 3, it says to the angel of their church in Philadelphia, write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. You've kept my word and haven't denied my name. So the keys of the kingdom of heaven are something that Jesus Christ gives. Jesus Christ gave it to, gave it to, um, gives it to his church. As long as we follow him and adhere to him, he opens doors that no one else could open he does things and performs things through people that no one else could do. I mean, even through Hezekiah, when we look at the Hezekiah's tunnel, no man could have devised that. That was God providing that. And Christ says that, you know, he'll do a wondrous work among his people. 
you know, before he returns as well as we follow him. So as we look at Isaiah 22, we see God commending this man who has at his heart, his heart completely yielded to God, something you and I just need to continually be working on and asking God, show me if there's anything between you and me that, you know, help me to get that soft fleshly heart that turns to you, that when I hear of something that I've done wrong, that I will immediately work to put it out of my life with the power of your Holy Spirit, that when you say, go here, we'll go here, do this, we'll do that, we'll become in tune with you and have a deep relationship with you that wherever you lead, we will follow and we will know, we will know it is your direction. So here in verse 22, it's it's a prophetic thing as well as it really happened back in the time of, of Jerusalem. So it talks, if we go back there to, to um, verse 22 in Isaiah 22, I will give this Eliakim the key of the house of David. I will lay it on his shoulder. It'll be his responsibility to do. He'll open and no one shall shut. He will shut and no one will open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. God says he will he will rest securely because when God is with you, no one could be against you. He didn't have to fear. He didn't have to worry. God was going to place him there. And as long as, as he followed God, he would be secure. And because of his commitment to God, he would bring glory to his father's house, to his family. Shebna was looking to bring glory to himself, and he ended up bringing shame upon his family. Um, Eliakim was looking to serve God, and he would bring honor upon his family the same way we do when we yield to God in our personal and, and collective lives and become who he wants us to become. In verse 24, then, it says, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house. Then just, look at the, just look at the commendation that comes upon him for following God and yielding to him. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. You name it, you name it. He's saying, here's, here's a man, Shebna. You should have done it this way. You should have yielded to God. You should have, shouldn't have made it about yourself. You need to make it about him and do his will. And that is the way to security and for a name that will be honored. Now, verse 25 is a little a little bit confusing as we wrap up this chapter. Um, it looks like it looks like God is saying in verse 25 that Eliakim is going to be cut off. But the commentaries, and I have to agree as I look at them, our commentary is silent on this verse, and I can kind of understand why. Other commentaries, the the uh, the prevailing opinion on this is that it's going back to verse 15 where the um, where the uh, prophecy or whatever against Shebna came about, and it's talking about Shebna. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed. And that, you know, we can look at that and say, well, Shebna thought he was secure, but he was removed. The peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. There may be another meaning on that. It's uh, again, God, you know, God knows what what that means, um, and we'll just have to see exactly what God had in mind at that point. But um, it seems to counter what verse twenty four is there. But um, you know, uh, but it maybe may just indicate that the man will die and and will pass to another person the burden that was on him as well. You can look at it in a couple a couple of ways. 
So let me let me stop there on on verse on chapter 22. We'll pick up chapter 23 and we should get through it next week. And then I think the week after we'll do kind of a review of these 11 prophecy chapters, if you will. So we have kind of in our minds just some basic things about the prophecies that we've talked about before we move into the next section of Isaiah, um, you know, the next 12 chapters that are kind of another section. So let me just open it up for any comments, questions, discussions, anything that anyone wants to, to talk about. Uh, uh, Mr. Shaby? Yes. Uh, I hope I can explain this. I'm not very good at explaining things. Okay. Uh, uh, the part where it says in, in uh, Isaiah 22 and Revelation 3, right? All right. I say, I'm going to go back in years. Herbert W. Armstrong, he either said it or was implied by others that he was the Philadelphia church. Okay. Right. So if, if that is true, uh, he had many doors open to him. He, he saw kings and prime ministers and, and presidents. And his work was not stopped. But then as soon as he died, which might refer to the last verse, it stopped. And the church hasn't been the same since, like in preaching the gospel, as it was with him. You know, it's just a thought. It's an, inter it's an interesting thought, because you're right, Mr. Armstrong did use that a lot, and certainly in the days, those days, there were doors opened that only could have been by God, wasn't by anything that man man could do. So, yeah, that 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 may well be referring to what it is there, so um, right. we'll, 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 know, we'll know one day, so good thought, though. Okay. Dale? Thanks. Yeah, hello, yeah. Um, I just found it interesting, the, the use of water, you know, the, the Gihon Springs you talked about. And of course, Jerusalem being the, uh, it's going to be the center of the millennial government and the waters will be for the healing of the nations. And uh, it, I just kind of found it very interesting. Then Isaiah 35 as well, right? Where it says, you know, the desert will blossom like a rose and waters will spring forth. And I think you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned Gihon, the, the Hebrew uh, definition is spring forth. Right. It's just interesting to see how God works. Yeah, God's very plan. good, very good. How those words keep coming up. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> could I ask you another brief question? Mm -hmm. The the uh, the key of David. Could you explain what exactly? I I got a general idea what it means, of course. But David will be over the twelve tribes. Could you give me an idea? What what do you think the key of David actually is saying? Thank you. I, I think the key of the house of David is is understanding and knowing God and following his way. I think that's that's the key. David was a man after God's own heart. God wants us to become men after his own heart, men and women. Um, and that that's the key, the Bible, following it, yielding to him and completely not just going through the act, but per, letting God completely change our outlook and our way of life. So sounds good. Thank you. Brother Shaby. Mm -hmm. And to the, the second that is is the the, the verse in um, in Matthew um, chapter sixteen where it talks about binding and loosing. Um, the better translations say that it has already been bound in heaven, meaning mm -hmm. what you are what you are the promises you're claiming and the things you're doing are according to the word of God, not according to you trying to force God to do something or your yeah. own weird ideas. Yeah, so it's already yeah. been found because God's word is true from the beginning. 
Yeah, uh, the God's true church will be doing things in, in line with God, right? The Catholic Church uses that verse to say, hey, whatever I say goes. I can change times. I can change laws. No, God doesn't honor that. It's, it's, it's living in complete accord with God's will and, and, and word, yeah. Mr. Shaby, can I make a comment? Yeah, Floyd, hi. How are you? Good. You? Good. Good. We just got back from Florida. It's beautiful down there. It is. <laughs> yes. So in Judges fifteen nineteen, actually 18, uh, where God split the rock for Samson to drink the water, that is, I guess, known as Samson's well now. Not that it's correct. I was just looking it up. That's a quarter mile, I believe, from that main water source there hmm. uh, in Jerusalem. It was interesting. I just was looking at that. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, I, that water source is key over there, right? That's kind of like a blessing of, of God that, yeah, I, yeah, pervades the scriptures, it appears. So it's, it's, it's yeah, very good. So, Mr. Shaby. Hey, Reggie. I'd like to make comment that, you know, God's kingdom is the uh, house of God. I mean, it, we're the church. And if he's called us and he's put his, king, uh, his spirit within us, then we are striving to go into God's kingdom. And God's spirit is what he gives to us to be called and to strive toward that kingdom. Yep. Build it, building the temple individually and collectively, right? Building the house. Yeah. So right. Mm -hmm. Pastor Shabi? Yeah, Alessia again. I just have some thoughts on the key of David. You know, key, uh, when we talk of keys, I, I believe keys grant access. When you talk of keys, you, you think of access and administration. You rightly said that um, um, the keys refer to our knowledge of the kingdom of God and his ways. That's quite correct. I agree with that. Then the second part of it is the administration. You know, when we um, have this knowledge, the knowledge helps us to administer justice as God's children. You know, having, having control, I mean, having um, administration over the house of God. So I'm, I'm thinking of keys as access and um, administration at the same time. I don't know what you think about that. Um, yeah, well, when, when you give the keys, like Eliakim, right? He was given the keys. He was given the keys. He had to do something with it. He had to be responsible for it and handle that position well. And, and what God gives us, when he gives us his Holy Spirit, while well, the calling and the opening of our minds, there's a responsibility that goes with that when he gives us the key to administer everything in our lives well in accordance with his will. I don't know if that's yeah. that kind of what you're thinking of or exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thanks. Hey Becky. Hey. Um, I was the comment before that one. I was looking at in Matthew 16, where we talked about give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And I was also thinking about um, the Holy Spirit as a deposit, um, sort of, you know, a, a down payment toward okay. that mm -hmm. key. Um, but I was hoping also you could help me better understand whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, because it makes me think of the verse um, storing up treasures in heaven but I can't find it right now. And I know where it is. I just can't find it right now. Um, yeah. Yes. I was looking at like three different things, uh, but I just really wanted to better understand or maybe ask your understanding of 
what that means. Because I've looked at it in different translations, and I just um, wanted to see if it was in line with my thoughts, okay. I guess. So tell me exactly what the question is, what my understanding um, is. Yes. So. The, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I wanted your take on it, Yeah. to be clear. I, I think that, you know, I think there are um, decisions that have to be made in the church where things aren't absolutely crystal clear but we have a responsibility to God to seek his word, go through his word, look at the pattern. I want a decision is made um, by the church. As long as the heart is with everyone, that that would be, that would be binding. Now, one, I'm going to give you an example on one because it, it recently came out with, you know, calendar. There's people who have, you know, different calendars that they want to abide by. Their idea is that a new moon begins on this day. The church is, says, the cast sets the calendar and says, a new begin begins this day and a full moon and all that stuff. And if you if you've read the summary paper that's online under study papers about the calendar, it will it will uh, show you in Leviticus and I believe Deuteronomy that it is it is it was the it was the um, high priests and the Sanhedrin's responsibility to set those holy days. They were supposed to set them in accordance with what God's will is. Um, and so that is a responsibility that God gives his church. And, and so um, anyway, I, I read that. And that's one of them where, you know, people can, people can say, well, you know, I think the new moon started over here on this day, but it was cloudy in Jerusalem on that day. And we could spend all our time just talking about all those things. Someone has to make a decision. And the church, as long as it's doing it in accordance with God's will, um, you know, the Bible is pretty clear when you read it that, that you know, you follow the principles that are there. So um, I probably have opened up a host of other questions, but go back and read that summary paper, and I think you'll find it very, uh, very interesting. Uh, yeah, Susan. Oh, hi. hi, Mr. Shady. I was just looking over these, these last five verses here in this chapter about Eliakim, and he's really quite a wonderful person with this uh this the glorious throne and everything. Verse 23, I will fasten him as a peg. And then verse 20, the peg that is fastened will be removed. It's it it just makes sense that it's all about Eliakim. Could it possibly be that that the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed? Could that be his death as a physical person? And then he is um, raised as a spirit being and he's converted. The burden that will be cut off is, is your life as a physical, sinful being, and now you're converted as a, as a resurrected spirit person. I Yes, it, it certainly could be that, right? And it says, you know, I, just as you were talking, a thought entered my mind. It says, uh, the peg that is fast in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. I mean, it could even indicate martyrdom, right? I mean, uh, there the disciples who handled God's will very well. They died because of it. And that that may be, you know, that may be what what happened there with him. We don't know what the end of his life was like or what future, you know, this, the future person that was there. Um, you know, some of the commentaries and our commentary will kind of compare Eliakim to Jesus Christ, as in God is the king, right? God is the overall king and Jesus Christ is the he's given Jesus Christ the authority over heaven and earth. And so it's Jesus Christ, you know, who we look to at as, as Eliakim. But even when he was on earth, he was cut down and he fell, didn't he? So he, he, he died and then he was resurrected again. So um, actually thinking through it, just in the little bit of conversation we had, 
I do think it's talking about Eliakim, and I don't think it's referring back to Shemna. Shemna's gone at this point, and I think there that this is referring to that to that instead. So, okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, Xavier. Brother Shabby, going back to Matthew um, chapter 16, um, there's a, a quote here from the Basics of Biblical Greek Grammar, William D. Um, Mounts. Uh -huh. He says, um, get the, 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 the grammar gives a clear and insight explanation of the underlying Greek text, showing what Jesus taught is entirely different from what many religious authorities assume, teach and practice. He writes in some translation, um, chapter 16, verse 19, and chapter 18, 18, it sounds like Jesus promised his disciples that whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, they had the power to bind and loose, and heaven, that is, God would simply back their decree. But the matter is not quite so simple. Action described in heaven are future uh, perfect passives which could be translated, will have already been bound in heaven, will have already been loosed in heaven. In other words, the heavenly decree confirms the earthly one is based on a prior verdict that has already given, has already made. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. Psalms 119, 89. Very good, very good. Yeah, we, we, have, never, we never confuse that, that God's giving us authority to change anything, but to, to be diligently following him. He will show the way, and our job is to, to follow. So, yeah. Hey, Berta? Uh, yes, back to uh, verse 25, when it says that even the noble Eliakim could not sustain the burden of government. Only Emmanuel can do it. That's why it's um, mentioned that in there. That Emmanuel would, can do what? The burden to carry Emmanuel, the burden? Like it mentions in, in chapter 9, 6, uh -huh. and 7. Emmanuel is the one that's going to do it. But um, the burden is uh, even the noble Ilya king cannot do the government. The burden is on Christ's shoulder. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Right. That the great piece of his government and peace. Okay. Very good. Anything else, anyone? Okay. Well, then I'm gonna I'm gonna sign off. We will see you next Wednesday, same time. If you are in Orlando this week, we are looking forward to seeing all of you in Orlando this Sabbath. So, uh, until then, those of you in Florida, uh, have a good rest of the week. The rest of you, we will see a week from today. Okay. Good night, everyone. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.